Tonight on This is Vinyl Tap, Swallowing the Ocean, left and right, the voice of Harold and disparaging Maryland. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. All right. My senior year of high school, this band came out of nowhere and took over the 80s and a lot of the 90s. I'm talking about the band R.E.M. That doesn't stand for anything. These guys <laughs> found it in the dictionary and they thought, wow, let's be that. Uh, we're doing their second album tonight, which is Reckoning. Came out in 1984. It is, uh, it's considered alternative rock, jangle pop. It is on the... <laughs> Mm-hmm. On the the famous and I believe now defunct IRS label, and uh, it was produced by Don Dixon and Mitch Easter, and both Tony and JM. Tony, can you say hello to everybody so we figure out whose voice goes with which person? Hello, everybody. It's Tony That's, here. <laughs> usually, Tony doesn't use his FM voice, but uh, yeah, <laughs> that's Tony. And he's a gigantic REM fan. And we have JM, Jonathan Rowe, who is the producer. Say something. Good evening, everyone. And he also is a big REM fan. And my name's Doug Cooper. Pregnant pause, pregnant pause. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Tony, you have a great deal of enthusiasm for this album. And fortunately... We have someone here that you can talk to and explain that enthusiasm to who will not interrupt you with his own enthusiasm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, do do we do we mention um, why you might be a little less enthusiastic tonight than you might otherwise be? (laughs) Well, there are several reasons. One one reason for my lack of enthusiasm is the band R.E.M. And the other reason is. Uh, I did a lot of good, hard, diligent study of Murmur, which (laughs) is the first album by this band. And uh, forced myself to listen to that thing about 20 times over the week. So anyway, if I say something stupid, uh, it won't be for the usual reasons. (laughs) Tony, tell us about this 
album with the remarkable cover art. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I can. Yeah, I'm gonna try. Right. I'm gonna try to swim through the sea of sarcasm dripping from your mouth. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, this is the second album by REM. It's my favorite album of theirs. Um, it is, uh, in my opinion, the most REM sounding of their early kind of IRS. There's a there's a group. Not everybody does this, but I think people who listen to them when they were on IRS kind of separate those albums from the Warner Brothers albums. Um, so yeah. they may put put five albums and uh, and an odds and sods thing called Dead Letter Office and, a, and an EP called Chronic Town out. We're all on on IRS, and then they switched labels, went to Warner Brothers, and I believe Green was their first album. brothers yeah they got a truckload um, of money driven up to their i, house. They I remember 80 uh, million dollars for signing that contract something like that 80 or yeah, I, they said uh, warner brothers said who whatever irs offers you will double it and irs <laughs> said well i guess you guys are gonna be going let's we're gonna make you a big offer though so they have to pay <laughs> um i remember i remember there's an ad in rolling stone uh at the time when the, when green came out that said two things you could do on election day vote and buy green by rem i distinctly <laughs> remember that anyway uh i digress I did um, one of yeah. Those. <clears throat> so yeah so this uh so like i said this is my favorite album by them it's it's uh it, it's a, a little bit more immediate than their first album there's there's some significant differences um Murmur uh, is uh, is very um, almost mellow. Um. Put your hair back. You get to leave. Eleven gallows. This has more of a live recorded feel, and that's what they were going for when they did this. So there's a big yeah. distinction there, and that's part of that immediacy. Um, the uh, there were some issues early in the recording of this with Stipe's vocal performance and his willingness to actually project. And so some things were done early on to try to get him to do that. So his vocal performance eventually uh, improved tremendously. That's why there's a couple of songs on this album where you can actually understand what he's singing. Um, Is that a good thing? At least the words. You may not be able to understand what he's singing, but you can understand the words. So, um, and the album cover, since you mentioned it, was a collaboration between Michael Stipe and a Georgia folk artist named Howard Finster. His artwork was done um, as uh, because he got visions from God. So he did all these all these uh, thousands and thousands of pieces, and he lived in a place in Somerville, Georgia, called Paradise Gardens that he had. Um, that he had sculptures, you know, around. He did. It was essentially a big art installation, just because he kept making stuff. And the and the video for Radio Free Europe was actually filmed on, at that at Paradise Garden. But anyway, he he did the artwork for this with Michael Stipe, and it's a two-headed snake with the song titles written on it. And then uh, a year later, he ended up uh, giving, or I'm, I'm sure selling, uh, Talking Heads 
one of his paintings for the cover of their album, Little Creatures. But um, again, back to this, uh, it just it just hits all the spots for me. Uh, the jangly guitars are great on it. And like I said, they're more immediate than than on Murmur. Uh, the um, Mike Mills's bass really, really picks up on this. And Bill Berry's drumming is really great. Uh, the odd thing, and and JM, you can you can see if you agree with me on this. Um, I I mean, I, it's funny because I listen in listening to this, I would lose myself in the songs because I do love this album. But I kept trying to think about there aren't very many guitar solos on this album at mm-hmm. all. Maybe no. one or two songs have a guitar yeah. solo, but for the most part, it's just kind of a continuation of what's going on. Well, it's almost That's like the also cute, the true of the album we're not talking about tonight. <laughs> well, it, you know. Peter Buck is kind of famous for uh, eschewing guitar solos. Uh, there are two songs where there is a guitar solo on it, but it's almost like those guitar solos are mocking guitar solos. Like, yeah, you're expecting me to do a guitar solo here, so I'm just going to do this real simple thing. And Can you talk about his guitar playing? Because I'm not a guitarist, but I've I've read a lot about it. I've heard a lot about this whole sort of this open arpeggio picking he does or yeah. whatever. So what he does a lot of times um, is he plays what they would call open open chords, and you don't mute all the strings that you normally would. So you, you just try to find a way to make, uh, kind of gives you a droning sound. And he's probably the master of figuring out that droning sound. You can hear it a lot on uh, like Seven Chinese Brothers. Seven Chinese Brothers. So the the idea is you just don't instead of playing bar chords you just kind of put your hands in various positions but you leave a lot of the notes open that you would normally uh, press down on and that creates that droning sound yeah, yeah. is there I, any other droning sound that that matches up with nicely in this band jeez oh, <laughs> um uh mike Stipes <laughs> vocals. <laughs> I don't think they're droning. I mean, they're they're mumbly, but I love them. I, 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 I find these songs immensely tuneful and entertaining yeah. and enjoyable. Yeah. Um, yeah. The thing the thing about about Peter Buck is I've always thought about him being sort of a. a I mean, there's you can draw this line from Roger McGuinn to him. Mm-hmm. And that's why I feel like this band was a pretty important American band when they came out because that kicked off all these other um, bands uh, who were a lot of them were Southern bands, but there were some East Coast bands as well and some yeah. California bands that started um, really kind of getting into that Birds guitar sound and creating yeah. that that resurgence of that '80s jangle pop, which of course. I was in heaven because of that. But, what um, uh, what kind of guitar did he play, JM? He played a twelve string Rickenbacker. Familiar <laughs> as that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For our ladies and gentlemen in the audience, that is, of course, what uh, the Birds made famous in when when they were inventing jangly guitars, and that's <laughs> yeah. the jangliest of all guitars. <laughs> right. You know, uh, I had read someplace said that Peter Buck initially wanted this to be a double album. Yeah, I read that too. And he got a lot of pushback from 
Don Dixon and the, the record company. But he did say that they were writing, reason why he wanted to make it a double album was because he said they were writing one or two good songs a week and they had been on the road so much. And uh, he just thought that they had so much material that they just could just go in and just lay it down pretty quickly. But uh, well, you the studio earlier. diary says it was 16 days. The album yeah. sleeve says it was 14 days. Yeah. And then Buck and others claim fewer days. Yeah. Well, yeah. and and it's interesting that you brought up all the songs because um, I'm going to use a term that that uh, Doug loves, uh, sophomore slump. So you know, most <laughs> most bands this age, um, and what I mean by that is, I mean the band. So Murmur came out in what '83. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. They had been a band for about four, three or four years prior to that. So a fairly young band, but because, like you said, they recorded and wrote songs, or not wrote, so they wrote songs all the time. So, um, you know, they were so pro- prolific that um, they were able to, like, move right past that sophomore slump because their songs had been road tested. They would go out and they play them. I think Doug mm-hmm. mentioned before we started that um, South Central Rain, the second song on this album, was was played on Letterman in 1983 when they were on Letterman promoting Murmur. And what's weird about that appearance is they play two songs. They play Radio yeah. Free Europe and then they play a nut, they play South Central Rain. They don't even have a title for it yet because Letterman yeah. asks him what it's called. And he says, Mike Mills says, we don't, it's too too early to have a title or whatever. But it was pretty <laughs> much, the song was the song at that point. Yeah. But they were so, yeah. they were so prolific that they, you know, they went to the studio and they had these songs where they had already kind of worked all the kinks out. So they were mm-hmm. able to just make this the second album that sounded like you know it just knocked it out of the park and and i've already confessed to these guys before the uh, podcast started that this represents the beginning of a dark age for me when i uh, (laughs) was not paying particularly close attention to uh music and i've got a i've got an idea and i want to bounce it off of you two there are two bands that I think are enormously influential, and I think the guitar players are maybe the most influential part of the band, and that would be R.E.M. and U2. I would say you have two limited guitar players compared to, say, Eric Clapton on Layla and other assorted love songs. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but these two uh, limited guitar players have profound uh, influence on everyone that came after them. Yeah, because they were a limited guitar player. He was a limited guitar player. It kind of made other bands think, hey, we can do this, too. I, I, I was going to yeah. say that it's kind of that Ramones thing where bands yeah. are yeah. like, Hey, we could do this. Yeah. And a lot of bands tried. I mean, if you went, if in 1985, if you went down to like the bone club on South Congress, you would almost every band you would see, would be almost a clone of, uh, of REM and, uh, or you too. God, that was, and you just, everybody got a digital delay and uh, suddenly they were the edge. I would so much rather listen to REM clones than U2 clones. I mean, I like U2 a lot, but especially yeah. around that period. But yeah. yeah. 
before we get get cracking, I think we need to talk about the producers a bit. Yeah. Um, Mitch Easter and Don Dixon. Yeah. Mitch Easter was a guitar player um, for that Let's Active. One of the reasons he was their producer for their or co-producer on their first two albums is he had a studio that yeah. it, that he um, a professional recording studio that he had uh, you know opened uh, in um, in his parents' garage in 1980 and the and he and they that's where REM recorded Radio Free Europe the single for Radio Free Europe was in the studio called Drive-In Studio it was one mm-hmm. of his early, earliest recordings one of Mitch Easter's earliest recordings so they were tied together you know early on. Um, he was one of these guys that believed the studio is, was another instrument. You know, he firmly believed yeah. in the magic of the studio and what you could do with multi-tracking bands and uh, that it gave bands texture, that you could do stuff in the studio, kind of that Beatles idea. You could do stuff in the studio that you that you were limited to doing live, but you could create mm-hmm. things in the studio, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting in terms of this album because REM did not want to do that. They wanted to go in, record this live kind of, you know, in your face kind of style. And they hated the fact that Mitch Easter was all about, you know, he really wanted to, um, to have them explore the, um, the possibilities of the studio and they didn't want to have anything to do with that. Yeah. They wanted to get their, uh, wanted to have the live sound as best they could. And that's where Don Dixon comes in because he was the one who had was familiar with this recording <laughs> style called by Neur- by oh, yeah. Ariel recording where you basically, <laughs> <laughs> so the idea with that is that you're, when you're listening to the record, it's supposed to be like you're watching a band play live. And so the it's nothing's totally in stereo. You're not like going to have, you know, the drums in one ear or the vocals in one ear, you know, is it going to be like what you would be watching if you're, it, it might be guitars more on one side and bass more on the other, but it, overall the picture that you get a live recording and they actually have a picture of the way you do it is you put microphones on a dummy's head and, to, and that's how, that's how the sound is recorded in that, in the area. So it's not just it's, that, but yeah. Well, it's you, even, yeah, it's even more complicated than that in the sense that they put it in the actual dump mannequins ear canals because it's not yeah. supposed to just be the location of the ears, but it's the actual, the way the shape of the ear and the head yeah. and all that's supposed to compete. I mean, if you're doing it right, of course, yeah. Don Dixon didn't have that. He just put two <laughs> mics on either side of a cardboard box and called it a day. <laughs> but, <laughs> Um, but Don Dixon also was, he was instrumental in this whole jangle pop thing. I mean, the bands he produced, he produced REM, Guadalcanal Diary, the Smithereens, the Connells, Marshall Crenshaw, Tommy Keene. He did the major, major debut for the Reavers, um, Saturday. He, he produced that. And the Reavers are of course an Austin band. That's why we're experts experts on this. Right. (laughs) Um, so yeah, he was, he was really kind of one of the guys making this sound a thing in the 80s and i've thought mitch easter was i saw him a couple of times he, he was a great guitar player um he had a really crack band with him uh so if you don't know lex active it's that's a good band for you to seek out yeah so, good stuff and i think there's one other thing we got to mention is that 
REM, for those who don't know, are from Athens, Georgia, and there is a lot of lore surrounding that part of Georgia, that town in particular. There's some bands that have come from there besides REM, um, B-52s being probably the first to break out from there. Then there was another band called Pylon. Well, are you guys um, ready to uh, jump into this record? Yeah, should we? Uh, so. We're gonna start with side L, right, Doug? We're gonna start start with side left, which is, <laughs> I mean, how many other people came out with albums and never realized there was a right and left side until these <laughs> geniuses found out? <laughs> so we have side left that begins with the first cut or the leftist cut, Harvard <laughs> coat. <laughs> That's pretty good, Doug. What a great opener. I, yeah, I, I really agree. like it. Yeah, it's just a great way to start off this album. It just jumps you. It's yep. just a great jump start. Um, and it kind of just kind of sets the stage for what REM was during this period and um, subsequent albums as well. Uh, it's just got a great harmony, great jangly guitar. I mean, that um, it's almost an alternative vocal by Mike Mills. You know, have you ever noticed that? It's like he's singing a totally different line than, well, um, than Michael Stipe. It's funny you say that because what he would do is he would write lyrics and write harmony parts, not knowing what the heck the song was really about. And so it's it's <laughs> it, you're absolutely spot on there. That's what he would do in a lot of their songs is he would just do these kind of other other parts and sing over them. Yeah. You know, do yeah. his own little deal. Um, it works, though. So um, what what is this song about? I'm I'm guessing well, that it's about the uh, the the Navy when they when they sided with the revolution in uh, in the Russian Revolution. That's, um, that's, but I'm basing that on very little information because uh, these these lyrics really don't go very deep into that. So so let's let's just let's just rip the bandaid off of that right now. RM's <laughs> lyrics are stream of consciousness. They're kind of uh, they, you know, Michael Stipe had an idea of what he was writing about when he wrote them. But the lyrics don't have any reference to that. Um, I can't tell you how many times I read an article about one of the songs on this album where it said um, Stipe in a concert in 19, you know, 98 said the song was about this. And then pause, pause, pause. Nobody knew the song was about this until he said it in 1998. So, well, I, uh, yeah. Yeah, isn't saw, it true that he's just so deep that no one understands his <laughs> lyrics? That's what it seems like to me. Listen, I don't have a problem with lyrics being nonsensical if they add to the song. They don't, yeah. I mean, you don't, 
these not, lyrics are fine. Yeah, that's they, they where, don't have that's been. that's where one of the big divisions, uh, ladies and gentlemen, one of the big divisions. We're a happy family here. And because we're such a happy family, we feel comfortable with disagreement because we know at the end of the day, we're all going to be on each other's side. But one of the big disagreements is <laughs> I think lyrics are enormously important. I've never listened to a record without going straight to the lyrics to find out what the guys are so, about. So that makes REM a very difficult band for well, me. They don't even, I, yeah, they don't even print their lyrics. I, I got, I got that, Doug. But let's also, let's also just, uh, for the record, I also think lyrics are important. I don't think they're, I don't think they have to be, but I do think they're important. I prefer a song where I can get into it lyrically, but with REM's early stuff, uh, and I guess the later stuff too, but the later stuff you could actually, the lyrics were audible. Stipe became a much more confident singer. And the early stuff, it's just part of the sound. And I, I yeah. like that aspect of it. You can kind of, you know, when you're a college or a high school guy and you're at a party and you're on your third beer and someone puts REM on, you can kind of yeah. mumble along with it and nobody knows the difference. <laughs> That's right. Well, and, he buries his vocals too. I mean, it he does. Those first four albums are pretty well buried in the mix. I mean, there are a couple of songs on this album where they come out, and again, when yeah. the lyrics come out, you're like, I scratching your head going, I don't know what the heck <laughs> this is about. I could sing along with it at least now, but I don't know what it's about. Here's, here's a quote on, on the lyrics that I found. An impressive sense of meaning, even as the meaning itself is not understood. Well, that's just pretentious. Yeah, whoever the hell somebody's <laughs> just seeing what the hell they could write I, there. I have I have heard this is about the Re Russian Revolution. I, I mean, I don't know if it is. The lyrics kind of allude to that to a certain extent. Um, it's supposedly about a, you know the day to day life of a Russian person person after the revolution. I guess mm. um, there's also an allusion to to Luke six forty one because there's a line that says there's a splinter in your eye and it reads react, uh, and then there's a biblical line that says why do you what? see the speck. It, that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eyes. So supposedly it's a reference to that. Um, huh. I, regardless of the lyrics, this song actually has my favorite bass and drum part. It's my favorite rhythm part of all, any song on really, this album. Really, really good. Yeah. 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 The drums are just this like rapid hi hat in the background. And the, yeah. and the, yeah. yeah, it's just really, really good stuff. And of course, as you alluded, JM, the Mike Mills bit where he's kind of singing. Singing <laughs> something other than you know, just something you yeah. also great. Yeah. <laughs> Seven Chinese Bros comes next. It's brothers. Oh. <laughs> so you'll love. I'm trying this. to be hip. <laughs> this is this. The, you'll love this, Doug. So in a in a. In a, a 2008 interview in Spin Magazine, Michael Stipe said this song was about him breaking up a couple and then dating both of them. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, what's anyway, that have to do with Chinese brothers. Well, I'll tell you, this is what people. There's a lot of speculation about this, but supposedly there's a there's an old Chinese proverb about five Chinese brothers, and there's actually a kids book about five Chinese brothers. And in the in one of the they all have superpowers, and one of the Chinese brothers uh, can swallow the ocean. Hence, in the song, he says, "Swallow the ocean, swallow the ocean." Um, and he and he agrees to swallow the ocean so this kid can gather fish or seashells or something. Um, hmm. And so he's holding the ocean in his mouth, and he tells the kid to quickly do it. 
so because he can't do it forever. And the kid ignores him, doesn't listen to him, and he ends up having to spit the ocean out and he drowns the kid. And because of that, he's brought up um, on murder charges and sentenced to death. So I should <laughs> laugh at that. But the the connection to that is supposedly that that, that really Stipe, happened. Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> Stipe, uh, Stipe is referencing his childish behavior of breaking up this couple and dating both of them and root kind of semi ruining their lives with this selfish child who won't heed what this Chinese brother holding the ocean does. So he is, he is the kid in that story. Supposedly that's yeah. what this, the, where the relation is. Well, well, I didn't know that, but there's one thing I did know. It was going to be about him. <laughs> well, we got to talk about the voice of Harold. Yeah. Yeah. We got to talk about that. Sales with the outpouring of their hearts. On and on, songs roll on, and soon you are caught up. The story that I heard was that Michael Stipe was just not being very cooperative in the vocal booth when he was singing, and um, he just didn't really. And I don't know if he just didn't have lyrics for the song or, or what was going on, but for some reason, he just wasn't projecting while he was singing. And was it Mitch Easter who gave him a... It was Don a, Dixon. Don threw, Dixon. Threw, threw an album at him. Yeah, threw a religious album at him by yeah. the, what, the Revelers? Is that... Yeah, what? The Joy of Knowing Jesus by the Revelers. Yeah, Revelers, yeah. Yeah. And so uh, Michael Stipe is just, was just reading the lyrics off that, and that was supposed to get his creative juices going. I've never really understood why he, of all things, you know, Don Dixon threw that album at him, but... It, it, it was supposedly on top of a stack of albums, and Don Dixon thought the lyric, the liner notes of it were funny, and that they would he would throw it to. So he evidently threw it to him and said, uh, you know, something like, "How does this grab you?" Or maybe this will give you some insight or something. And uh, they had already laid the the music tracks down, including uh, Mike Mills' vocal parts. And yeah. so uh, uh, Michael Stipe just essentially talks, sings the liner notes off the back of this Rebel Airs album to the to the music of. of Seven Chinese Brothers. So it's a, the the music track of Seven Chinese Brothers was Stipe reading the back of this album. Um, it was That's later awesome. released. It was released as a B side to one of the singles off this album, and it's also on Dead Letter Office. Yeah, it's pretty funny if you actually. It's, it, it is. It's funny. Yeah. Um, he does a good job. I mean, it, he, yeah. he's able to. It's amazing how he was able to. Maybe there was something to it. He's able to keep the liner notes in sync with the with the tune. It yeah. sounds almost like it was intended for that. Oh yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah. Um, How about that South Central rain, huh? Ah, yeah. This one is a fantastic song. Fantastic song. First single, first single released. Um, and there were two versions of seven inch, which had the voice of Harold as a B side, and then a twelve inch that had King of the Road cover, of King of the Road by Roger <laughs> by Miller. Roger and Miller. That's great. And if you want to, yeah, if you want to crack you yourself up, understand off. his uh, words. <laughs> and then a cover, a cover of Pale Blue Eyes by the Velvet Underground was also yeah. on that twelve inch. Which and they they're both good. Group. They're both good yeah. versions. Um, well, the I mean the Roger the uh, 
the Roger, Roger Miller song they do is is hilarious. Yeah, yeah. But um, but as you Supposedly mentioned, they were drunk. That didn't surprise me. Um, <laughs> I think you mentioned this earlier, Doug. That uh, this or uh, one of us, maybe I mentioned it. That this was this was a song that was. <laughs> I don't know. We've been kind of rambling. Uh, uh, this is this is a song that was played on Letterman before it had been recorded. Yeah, um, that's they, right. We both yeah. mentioned that. You remembered yeah. correctly. Thank yeah, you. and that and that didn't have a name yet. Yeah. And uh, oh, Michael didn't even talk. He had to go sit down on the stage. Well, he, you know, in the early days, he never spoke. I remember seeing him on Nickelodeon one time, and all the they were doing a question and answer from kids in the studio audience. And I don't think Michael Stipe said a word. Almost so, all the talking was done by Peter Buck. Here, the same the same thing happened on American Bandstand with Dick Clark. Um, <laughs> really. And I can't remember. It was in a song war against. Uh, it was Radio Free Europe versus two other songs. I can't remember. And it absolutely kicked their butts. <laughs> and he asked a little teeny bopper airhead uh, what she liked about the song, and she goes, "Of, of course." He goes, oh, "It's got the good beat," and uh, that <laughs> it it, well, it clobbered the other tunes. So. So Stipe, yeah, Stipe was a real bad introvert, which is an odd choice to be a lead singer for a band yeah. if you're an introvert, right? But yeah. he, um, according, the legend is he did a lot of the singing for this album in the stairwell of the studio. Like he is wasn't even, right? yeah, he wasn't even part of, like he wasn't in there with the band. Huh. Um, the producers would snake, snake a microphone out to him. And apart from a little coaching they did, they just left him out there to sing. But yeah. here's here's something he did. He's a vegetarian. Uh, another reason you probably don't like him, Doug. But he was a vegetarian, and uh, and he started at the time he started eating lots and lots of food infused with garlic. He thought it was good for his, uh, I guess, for his body or whatever. <laughs> Ate lots of garlic, and uh, and he evidently had lost a little bit of interest in his own hygiene, and so God, he that. was not smelling very good. Uh, while they're recording this um in fact some i read someplace someone referred it to referred to it as garlic gate because it was just like he would arrive (laughs) arrive at the studio with these plates full of these like containers full of food just covered in garlic and then eat them throughout the session and the rest of rest of it it's it's kind of funny mitch easter talks about you know because he only saw them when they were recording the rest of the band these the band members are pretty close and they were on the road a lot and they recorded a lot so they didn't see this bizarre transition it just kind of happened gradually for them but mitch he sort of talks about seeing stipe from murmur to reckoning he's like this guy something weird was going on yeah i've heard know? stories that of him <sighs> just showing up at restaurants just unbathed and would tell people the evils of soap they had a long run together and yep. i know they they said they had some rocky spots but one thing you have to give this band credit for is they they st- they stood by one another. They stuck together. It mm-hmm. is a very unusual situation in rock and roll. That in the good times and bad times, they really hung together. Even eventually, when the drummer quit, they were, uh, yeah. You know, it, there was no bitterness in his leaving. Yeah, uh, yeah. I got to hand it to them on that because most of these rock bands can't get along the way they did, and yeah. you've got this crazy garlic man in your band and you're <laughs> up with that. the uh 
just real quick going back to South Central Rain. I really, really, I just say this. I mean, I'm not, again, how many times do I have to say I'm not a musician, but I really love the bass line. On oh, song. yeah, it's incredible. And, it's and unbelievable. And Bill's la- layered lyrics on top of what, what, what yeah. Stipe is doing just adds, yeah. it's going to sound pretentious, but I'll say it for Doug, adds some real depth to an already strong <laughs> song. Yeah. I love <laughs> the you, way Cecilia. that... <laughs> and there's something, one of the things I also about rem is that they don't just when they end uh, a song that doesn't fade out they almost always end on just a strangest chord yeah and that's a kind of what they did on on this this is a one of the, a very good example of that and it's also got that really you know mike mills just banging away on the piano in there um and uh another i i also like the drums on this one a lot they they start echoing through the during the chorus and then they're during the verses, they're just right there in your ears. No, you know, no lot, wetness, as they say. A lot of with no wetness. A lot of people <laughs> say this is the album that Bill Berry kind of got, like became Bill Berry. Like he got yeah. got became his own on this album. And I agree, the drumming on this on these songs is really really great. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were, uh, you know, it's only the second album, but if you consider the years they spent in obscurity playing in. Uh, they said they were playing in pizza parlors in any place they could for years and years. And uh, and they credit some of their success with the fact that they were able to practice and practice and practice in relative obscurity. They, they mentioned yeah. if they'd been in New York or something like that, people would have heard them and dismissed right. them long before they ever got to this point. Huh, maybe yeah. it's like go, maybe it's like going to Hamburg. Yeah, you know? a little bit with your uh, 10,000 hours. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> well, uh, they didn't spend 10,000 hours writing lyrics. We know that. <laughs> um, <laughs> pretty Persuasion, number four. She's got opening i love that opening arpeggio guitar that just comes in there and then it's also so weird it has it's in a totally different key than the rest of the song it's just kind of this nice intro and then they you know bill berry kicks it off with that frenetic drum part so also also another song supposedly about michael stipe's uh, sexuality um you know, I don't know if you can read that in the lyrics or not, but you know, it does say he's got pretty persuasion, she's got pretty persuasion, goddamn pure confusion. <laughs> she's got pretty persuasion. So I, you know, read into it what you want to. Yeah. Um, it's one of the oldest songs of theirs. This was report, evidently performed live as early as '80, and really? uh, was originally recorded for Murmur, um, but wasn't included on Murmur. And then Mitch Easter wanted him to do it for this, and Stipe had grown to dislike the the song. He didn't want to do it. But because they they the fans who they played in front of liked it so much, he was convinced to do it, so they recorded it for this. Yeah, well, it's it unusual. It's it's unusual. The chorus is in a minor key, and the uh, verses are in a major key. And the the verses are kind of the uplifting part, but the yeah, the actual song part where he says "pretty persuasion" over and over is in a minor key. Well, and the other weird thing about this song is it was released as a promotional single that actually reached number 44 on the Billboard's Rock Tracks chart, 
whatever that is. <laughs> whatever that is, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's a charted promotional single, so. Yeah, and that, but and Mill's voice again, just, just want the harmonies yeah. on this are great. I, yeah, I don't think we can stress enough how how much he his vocals add to these songs. Um, yeah, and just REM songs in general. Um, it, it's it's funny because they're another band where the the two singers sound similar enough to where yeah. the vocals really work together. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. and I don't know if it's the same thing with the Cars, where you know the Cars. Uh, um, it was uh, funny with the cars how frequently they weren't everybody would be singing background except for uh, the other singer in, right. in a lot of those songs I watched them live and I, I thought how did, how is that yeah. and I wonder if that was done because they did sound so much alike I have no idea well, yeah. they're, they're, I was what I was going to say is Rico Kasich attributed to that to the fact that they just played together for so long right. that they just started sounding. So I'm sure the same thing happened with Mills and because Mills sang yeah. sang on some of. The, I mean, he sang lead on songs early on as well, even though he didn't really do yeah. that much when until I guess until um, what they sang Life's Superman, pageant. yeah, yeah, Life's Life's pageant. Pageant. I Think that was, a, that might have been his yeah lead vocal debut. Yeah. Um, well. Then we have number five, time after time. This is the last song on side L, Doug. I know it. We're about to. It's the least go L. To the right side. It's, it's the um, least I think it's a pretty decent way to close out the side. Um, I do too. It's got a real. It's really kind of mellow and hypnotic. I I don't know, uh, Jam, if you'd agree with me it on has, this, but but the drums a Middle sound Eastern al- vibe to it. Yeah. Yeah, the drums almost sound like psychedelic or something, and it's probably what you're yeah. talking about that Middle Eastern vibe to it. Um, yeah. But the drums have this weird kind of do 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 do, you know this. Yeah. Uh, well, the uh, first he's playing congas at first, and then he kind of rolls into this uh, kind of rumbling, you know, uh, playing a lot of toms, playing a lot of floor tom, and then he just hits those every now and then. He'll hit a, a snare hit, but yeah, it's a the drums are pretty interesting on this song. And it's uh, it's the first song with what you would call a real quote unquote guitar solo. If yeah. It's, much, it's not much of one. It's a solo yeah. of sorts. <laughs> I, yeah, I think it's got like it. three notes. Yeah, <laughs> I think maybe that's what well, that's what you should call Peter Buck solos. A solo of sorts. <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, that's a great... I, I do like this song a lot. Yeah, it's one of my favorites on the album. It's a nice way to kind of ease out of this side and get you ready yeah. to flip it to yeah, side man. R. <laughs> get, we get on into the right side. <laughs> and up. Uh, on the right side, we start out with second guessing. Well, it's certainly one of their most frenetic, happy songs that they've, I mean, I don't know if Absolutely. the lyrics themselves are happy, but yeah, just a great. Um, it, 
they rock on this song in a way that they never really get to do much. I mean, this yeah. song is really a frenetic is a perfect word for it. You know, it's just yeah. out of the gate kind of bam, 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 bam. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That's a great, it's a great, great way to start the second side. Yeah. It's another uh, bass workout by, by Mills. And, and one of the things I want to say about Mills is I usually don't like busy bass players. Um, I just, you know, I like it a lot more in the pocket, you know, guys playing in the pocket. Um, you know, like a lot of prog rockers don't bass players kind of drive me insane. Pocket, pocket. What's a pocket? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but especially if they use a pick like Mills does, but for some reason, um, I mean, to me, it sounds like those guys are just, whenever somebody's playing a bass really busy, it's like they're pissed off that they're not the guitar player. So they're just gonna, uh, play as much many notes as they can on bass but uh for some reason it 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 works with mills his bass playing is just so um uh melodic and he carries a lot of the songs as well i mean he it's almost like you know you took away the guitars you could probably have a a pretty nice uh song anyway yeah I, I don't know if this is because uh, it's going to sound odd because I was such a Rush fan early on, but the bass has always been an instrument that for some reason just naturally comes to my ears when I'm listening to stuff. Yeah. And I've always been, always been fascinated and attracted to bass players that can play kind of their own version of a melody under the song. It's not just keeping yeah. the beat or whatever. It's, it's, they're doing something interesting that's tuneful that mm-hmm. adds, adds a layer to the song. And Mills does yeah. that on yeah. these. I mean, it was like Paul McCartney's another one who's a really busy bass player, but he almost always I'm always intrigued by what he's playing. The second track on side right is Letter Never Sent. Oh, I love the way this song starts off. I like the way it starts off, but it's it, yeah, it's not one of my favorites, but it's I do like the way it uh, starts that's, off. That's funny because I I've always felt like if Reckoning is the most REM sounding album from this era for me, this has always been the most Reckoning REM sounding song to me. Huh. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I I I just you know I just think everything about it is kind of uh, symbolic or or puts that REM that concept of what REM was trying to do into th- this song does that in three minutes really well but you know but the harm I think one of the things you like about it is it does have that kind of quintessential um, stipe Mills harmony yep yep and that's yeah I, I, it is remarkable in that song we go to number three on side right which is camera. This song definitely has a story behind it that's fairly well known. It was supposedly about a photographer, Carol Levy, who um, was a close friend of the band. I think Stipe might have dated Carol at one point. Um, died in a car accident on a trip from Athens to Atlanta. Um, Carol Levy was also the photographer who took a picture of the band on the back of the Radio for Europe single. 
but yeah, that's supposedly what this song the song is about. Um, hmm. It's uh, it, it's an it's an intriguing song. It's what probably the mellowest song on the album. Yeah, I'd and, say it's one uh, of the mellowest songs they've ever done. You know what it reminds me of, JM? And uh, I oh. would say Doug, but Doug didn't listen to this album before we recorded this, so I don't know if <laughs> he can comment on this. It, it always. Uh, it, it, this song always struck me as REM's version of a Velvet Underground song. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah, I I, I could see that. It really it almost sounds like Pale Blue Eyes. Kind of has that yeah. sort of. Yeah. Well, they um, were they were big listeners of the Velvet un- Underground. I, I yeah, think they that's sure were. Um, this song also has, I guess, really what you call the really only true guitar solo on the album. Yeah, and, and it's <laughs> Again, a weird one. It it's is. a weird one. You know, it's got that is kind of weird tinkling bells over it, whatever yeah. he's playing, and this bizarre muffled alarm sound going on. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a not it's not your traditional guitar solo by yeah. any stretch. Well, yeah, the whole song is just really unusual. It it starts off just a a bass and um, yeah, it's Bill really Barry stark. hitting just a, yeah, just hitting a rim shot on the on the snare and. Um, you know the, the the drums do pick up in a little while. It's got an organ in it, and then I don't know. It's got something that sounds like wind chimes going through. I'm not sure if the lyrics really connote a person who has died, but it does sound kind of mournful. Um, it does. It definitely sounds mournful. Uh, I've I've lots of people say um, that Stipe um, didn't really. You know, and this is I guess a problem a lot of people have with this album. That he wasn't his, he was really not a comfortable and, uh, you know, um, he wasn't a comfortable singer. He wasn't comfortable with the singing. So he sang yeah. a lot behind, behind the songs. That the vocal performance on this, because of what it's about, who it's about, really deserved a little bit better. And he mm-hmm. evidently corrected that as he, as they started performing it live, he got out yeah. of that. And the live versions of this song are evidently pretty powerful. I mean, his singing is not is by far my least favorite thing about this album. Um, yeah. But everything else about it, the band just is just great. And it just hits me right in my sweet spot, right mm-hmm. in my jangly sweet spot. <laughs> Speaking um, of jangly sweet spots. Number four on side right is don't, don't go, go back to Rockville. Yeah, it's by far my favorite song on this album. Um, it's, I think, yeah, I can't decide if it's this one or Seven Chinese Brothers, but yeah. So I, I do like uh, this song. We, we do know who wrote this song because Mike Mills has done interviews about it. Um, Mike Mills wrote this, and it was about a girl who was not really his girlfriend, but a girl who was going back to Rockville, Maryland for the summer. And uh, he thought immediately, like, going back to Rockville, what a great song title. I, you know, listen to too, he probably listened to too many monkey songs at the time. But um, <laughs> it's so he decided to turn it into a song where the girl, this guy's girlfriend is going back to Rockville and she's not coming back. Um, yeah. and, and what's what's really cool about this song was 
before they recorded it for this album. And I've got I've got a recording of it from an old bootleg. For those of you millennials listening, a bootleg <laughs> is is a is a uh, pirated uh, live concert of a band usually poorly recorded or recorded off of a board um they're usually not very good but they're interesting yeah. little artifacts yeah. and i have a uh, i think it's called going south um is the name of it and it's got a version of this because this used to be much more ramonesy much more punk huh. rock this song it was very very much like just yeah. really you know sped up um mm-hmm. And I heard and, their lawyer. Yeah, they reason they country fight it is because their lawyer was a big country fan. So they yeah, they're, they're 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 yeah they they uh, yeah he loved he loved the song and as a joke they slowed it down and as as according to Mike Mills they Graham Parsoned it up a bit <laughs> and uh, and they all loved it after that they're like God this is great because they weren't even going to yeah. put it on the album until they did that wow. um, and and what's 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 also kind of funny is. Uh, the uh mills talks about performing it live and whenever he performs it live the chorus is always done in three-part harmony but he said he went back and listened to the original song and the only part of the chorus that's in three-part harmony is the song is the word rockville the rest of it don't go back to is sung in unison so he was singing it live (laughs) wrong the entire time just because of the way he had it um yeah but yeah this is released as a single and it didn't, did not go anywhere yeah well it's got great piano work on it too that's uh mills yeah. playing it's got that tack piano sound on it I, I mean i don't know if they just got a piano and tried to make it sound like an old timey western piano but that's uh, really cool piano part on it um, and, you know i had always heard that stipe hated the song and so he would never do it live um i, I, I don't think I, i've ever seen it live in fact i, I don't well, I, yeah go ahead uh, what I was going to say is I couldn't find anyone backing that up anywhere, but I did find out that later on um, when they started playing it live again, Mills would sing it. So that kind of leads me to believe Stipe didn't like the song. Yeah. Yeah. So I li- Lindsay and I lived in DC for five years. Lindsay's my wife. The first year we were there, we would go up to Rockville because um, it wasn't yeah. very far. And I would annoy the hell out of her by singing this song every, I mean, every time for the first year she was, she just got sick of it. I would sing the chorus of it. Um, That's probably when she started robbing banks, even though she didn't need the money. Last number on side, right? Little America. I think this is kind of the, the harbinger of things Start to come. With it, an earthquake, birds and snakes, an airplane, Lenny Bruce is not afraid. I have a hurricane, listen to yourself. This song, this song is the uh, and I know I've said this a couple of times in, in reference to where these songs are placed. This is a perfect closer for this album. Yeah. Yeah. It just it just closes the album perfectly. And it's got it, I mean, it's funny that about the title because it's almost sounds more epic than anything on the album, too. And as you said, mm-hmm. the, the, the the drumming, it's all, the song's chaotic in a weird way. Yeah. There's just a lot of go, going on. And uh, and yeah, I could see what you're saying about this being sort of a, a, a hint of what was what was around the corner. Um, definitely. But I think this out, this song probably captures what more than anything, what they were trying to do in terms of this kind of immediate live sound of what was going on. Cause that, yeah, yeah. It, this, this song sounds that way to me more than almost anything else on the album. 
the uh, the interesting thing about it, the Jefferson in the song was uh, REM's longtime uh, manager Jefferson Holt, and uh-huh. uh, and in the '90s, sometime maybe the early 2000s, I can't remember. He got fired by the band supposedly for, uh, I don't know. They they kept it under wraps, but the 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 talk is that he was ogling the staff or something like that. So they fired. Oh, really? And uh, and now, well, when REM would sing the song live after that, they they took his name, they changed his name, they canceled. Oh, really? It. And they, they uh, <laughs> and instead of Jefferson, they would sing Washington. <laughs> I don't know why they picked Washington other than I guess as another president, but yeah, yeah, interesting. Uh, much like the Beatles, when when REM hit hit um, the states, I mean they were already in the states, but when they when they started when they started recording stuff. Um, you could not get a review of an album by an independent American band where a reviewer didn't say something about them being derivative or sounding like REM. It just it was unfair to a whole lot of bands, but that was sort of the label. They, yeah. they it was just a lazy label they slapped on all sorts of jangle pop bands. They're oh they're ripping off REM. Oh it's a yeah. it's derivative of REM. Um, <laughs> it's it's funny. Uh, one of my favorite bands from the uh, late. 80s is a band called Firehose, yeah, which is yeah. uh, which was uh, Mike Watt and George yeah. Hurley from the Minutemen, and this and this kid named Ed from Ohio who who looked them up after um after D, D Boone. Boone D Boone died and and encouraged them to get in a band. Anyway, on their second album, they wrote a song called "For the Singer of REM." sort of semi homage semi spoof that is it just you would love it doug because the lyrics are just nonsensical the music <laughs> i mean the, the guys in the guys in firehose are really good musicians yeah for, mike for watts one of band. the best yeah one, and he's one of the george, best bass players around and even george hurley you know he's a great drummer yeah so they would um but what's so funny is you listen to the song for the singer of rem and, and you can tell they're just really giving they're ribbing them in a way but it sounds you know if it you could play for somebody and they, they could, you know, they could get it pretty easily. Yeah. So it's a great song though. Well, I'm yeah. going to, I promise you, I'm going to look for that. <laughs> one of the, one of the sad things about the movie, um, walk hard is that they did not have an opportunity to get on, uh, REM. <laughs> I think they could have done a number on, on REM. Yeah, maybe they did. It's just on the cutting room floor. Cause they did so many other people. We, we probably have some very confused fans at home, and I, I feel like an explanation is due. Um, normally, I'm very compassionate and uh, I, I express great sensitivity to all the artists that we cover, except for the elves and uh, and now except for uh, Argon. And I, I just think that uh, they represent a perfect storm. Uh, one is the timing. They did they did come at a time when I was losing patience with people my age, and um, they they all, there's also an issue that uh, came up for this uh, for this uh, episode for the research I did, and that is all these guys uh, that that we cover. Uh, we do a lot of research, and that means watching a lot of interviews. 
and I, I think of the clash specifically. I saw those guys um, being interviewed when they were 19, 20, early 20s. And as you would expect, they're, they're arrogant jerks, uh, as I was at that age. But then I watch uh, them in their middle, middle age years, and they're completely different. They're very likable. Almost everyone we've talked about who didn't die, uh, Rush, for example, those guys in the interviews in their later years were all very likable and yeah. guys you'd like to go have a beer with. But uh, Michael Stipe, that didn't happen to him. He stayed that way. <laughs> and I know for a fact if we met, he, I know he would hate my guts within <laughs> two minutes. I have no doubt whatsoever. And there's almost nothing that bothers me about people that he doesn't do. And uh, that's, yeah, I think that's part of what happened to me in REM. And uh, and then the fact that all during college, uh, they were always on. It yeah. was, you couldn't escape it. Them and the Smiths. You couldn't escape them or the Smiths. Let's see. I also love that band, the Smiths. Yeah. <laughs> But again, and you're also you're also young enough that I, you I am. you weren't in college getting smothered by REM. <laughs> no, I mean you know I am I am uh, so I graduated. Every dance had that the end of the world as you know it, which made me just want to. Well, I'll tell you, I don't like that it. song very much. Well, I know but, you um, wouldn't. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm what I'm going to be 51 this month. I don't know how old you guys are, but so I'm younger than you guys, right? I'm 54. Okay. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, when, when REM was coming of age, um, I mean, I, I was, I was of an age where I could buy some of these albums as they were coming out and look forward to, you know, I could, I was looking forward to albums that are considered part of REM's golden age. I was buying those albums as they came out, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. so that may be another reason why I have such an affinity for this band. Um, oh yeah. I bought, I think I bought every album. They, this was the first reckoning was the first album I bought by them, but then I immediately went out and bought murmur. And I think I bought every album after that until um i think out of time was the last album no automatic for the people i think was the last so that's the last rem album i bought as well yeah. automatic for the people yeah. i lost interest after that yeah i bought I, I bought uh i bought murmur i think the month it came out because there was so much buzz at my high school about it and i did like it and then when i was re-listening to it for this podcast i knew <laughs> all of the i knew all of the songs even though they were the wrong ones um, but uh I, I, and, and there's well, one thing i have to say about rem to be fair and to keep my reputation as the one who's always right on this show and that is um these guys wrote hooks as well as anybody else that i can think of since yeah. the beatles it is every song sounds like a song you've heard before even when it's the first time you've heard it and yeah. that's because they just wrote amazing hooks mm -hmm. well yeah. you know um i i told i told the story during the rush podcast about how i discovered that band and you know the my friend disparaging me by <laughs> not telling me not telling me who the band is, just being aghast oh, that no. I was a Rush fan. <laughs> um, so this band saved my bacon. Um, 
I was on the road to listening to some pretty horrific stuff. Um, by all accounts, uh, I was pretty much a metalhead at the time, but I was getting into some really, really like, you know, what you'd consider dark stuff at the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I heard driver eight on the radio and oh, it, was, yeah. it was unlike anything I'd heard before. And I fell in love with it and got obsessed with the band after that. Not, I ended up not being a metalhead and turning into some <laughs> little little geeky alternative, get, you know, guy moping around with my hair and my, my bangs in my face. But with uh, the particularly uh, with the particular uh, interest in maybe power pop and jangly pop. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know the the work ethic of this band is impressive, and yeah. uh, the cohesiveness of this band, the fact that they're all still talking well of one another. I think yeah. the only about the band that was like that that we've talked about was the Moody Blues. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so Rush was that. Man. Rush is that way too. That's yeah. true. I forgot about Rush for some reason. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Tony, we're talking about this music that came out in the '80s and the '90s and had a profound effect. And I'm sure we have a lot of young listeners who who are excited about that, but they'd probably like to know about something new. Tony, what do you have for the kids tonight? Well, Doug, I am excited to talk about an album that was released on Friday. So it's hot off the presses. Um, it is an album by a gentleman by the name of Jason Ringenberg, who was the lead singer and uh, head guy of a band called Jason and the Scorchers. On the who they were they were one of the forerunners of the alternative cow punk twang core whatever you want to call it um uh you know from the 80s um he's one of the best yeah basketball players in the world yeah yeah he's a hog farmer from uh ohio i think is that right yeah or kentucky i don't know whatever anyway anyway he he's still going strong and uh, and he released uh, he released an album called Rhinestoned, uh, and it's <laughs> and, and as people are talking about it, they're just saying that it's you know it, it's it kind of rocks in a way that um, that he has it in a while. He he's he's actually done a couple of things. He was he was involved in a a, a kids he did a kids thing called Farmer Jason that my kids I got for my kids when they were young. We listened to it. I mean they listen they wore that first Farmer Jason's album out. But um, anyway, he releases this album called Rhinestone on on Friday. Um, it's got a it's got a, a it's got a hymn on it. Christ is risen today. That he 
that he kind of Jason and the Scorchers is up. It's it's great. Yeah. It's really well, great. A, isn't he a born again Christian? Probably, yeah. yeah. But it's just it's re- it's really really good. Highly recommend it. The song there's a song on it I really like called "I Rode with Crazy Horse." Once I rode with Crazy Horse. I stood by him through his divorce. I stood by him when others ran I stood by him when war began I had no shame or dark remorse Once I rode with crazy um, that's, that's great. Um, there's this, you know, your typical anti, anti-Nashville song called Nashville Without Rhinestones. It's all about, you know, what's happening to, to country music in Nashville now. But, it, you know, it's... it's uh, it's an artifact of a guy who who's who's still going strong and uh and you know we ought to all we ought to all appreciate the fact that this guy could still make good music. Well, that's it for tonight's show. Next week we'll be taking a look at a stunning album by one of the most important figures in rock and roll and folk, Bob Dylan's Freewillin' Bob Dylan. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Tapping Vinyl. Or you can mail us at tappingvinyl at gmail.com. Leave us a note or a review or tell us what albums you'd like for us to consider in an upcoming podcast. And if you know of anyone that likes music or the LP format, be sure and let them know about this podcast. For our host, Doug Cooper, our co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, this is Vinyl Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11. And remember, don't go back to Rockville.